good to be in the Lord's house today, isn't it? This morning we're going to be looking at a passage from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 this morning we'll take a quick look at verses 1 through 10. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 10. In a sermon that I've titled, Walk in Newness of Life. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Walk in newness of life. Some of you may be familiar with the great hymn writer John Newton, but many probably don't know that his life was not the best before he wrote some of the great hymns that we may have in our hymn book, specifically the great hymn, Amazing Grace. As a teenager, John Newton ran away from home in England and joined the crew of a slave ship. Several years later, he was actually given as a slave to the wife of a slave trader in Africa. He was treated so poorly that he had to scrounge for food that literally fell from his master's table and he had to dig for wild yams in the ground at night. After eventually escaping, he joined a group of natives that was able to, and was able through that, to work hard enough to become a sea captain himself, living the most ungodly and promiscuous life imaginable. The Lord would eventually get a hold of his heart and bring him salvation in 1748, where he eventually returned to England and became a selfless minister of the gospel of Christ. And this is where he wrote many of the wonderful hymns that we know today. He became the pastor of church, and to this day, the churchyard carries an epitaph that was written by Newton himself, which reads, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. By the grace of God, John Newton was able to echo the words from the Apostle Paul from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13, where the Apostle Paul says this, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy. Newton experienced the life-changing grace of God personally, and it was his heart's desire to communicate that grace of God that he experienced firsthand through preaching and through hymn writing. He was overwhelmed and he was humbled that God could take someone like him, someone who had made such a mess of his life, and accomplish something great for God's kingdom. It's truly amazing to see what the grace of God can do in the life of an individual who was otherwise cast off and useless and good for nothing. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, he reminded them of what they had all been saved from. How the grace of God had transformed them from a horrible life, miserable, wretched life, to a life of grace and glory. Now listen to what he called them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 2. He said, Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He calls them saints. 
And then just a few chapters later, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11, he says to the same group that he just called saints, he said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God, as such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The grace of God can transform the chief of sinners. And Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. The grace of God can do that. It can take the, the vilest, most vulgar individual and transform them into something so wonderful and special in the sight of God because the grace of God is greater than the power of all of our sin. And this is the reality that we've been discussing the past several weeks. The grace of God in our lives. The grace of God that brings new life to us. It should lead us to live these new lives. In Galatians 2.20, Paul speaks of his own conversion and the new life that he lives in Christ since he was saved. He said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God had given him a new life. And it wasn't his old life that he was going to continue to live going forward once he was saved. Paul recognized that God had changed him completely, inside and out, through and through. He's a brand new creature. And this change required a new walk, a new life. Here in Romans chapter 6, we're given insights into what the powerful grace of God does in our lives. The wonderful truths from the previous chapters, uh, which spoke of the peace and the reconciliation that we have uh, with God through our faith in Him, is what Paul is building off of once we get here to chapter 6 of Romans. Sin may have reigned in our bodies. Sin may have had dominion over us before we were saved. It may have held us on a collision course straight to hell, complete separation from God. But when the grace of God intervened in our lives, we were translated out of that darkness, out of that hopelessness, out of that eternal misery into God's marvelous light where now we're children of God and we're destined for heaven because of Him. And this chapter here in Romans chapter 6 is all about living in that light. Living like you're a child of God. Living like the grace of God has brought that change in your life. Demonstrating outwardly the change that has been done inwardly. It's all about living in holiness in light of what Jesus Christ has done for you. The first ten verses that we're going to be looking at here this morning, they'll contain three elements on how we can live that holy life. With your Bibles open to Romans chapter 6, follow along as I read the first 10 verses here. Romans 6, verses 1 through 10. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, 
we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. So what I want you to notice first is what stands in our way. What stands in our way? There should be something different about who we are as Christians. We should stand apart from the rest of the world since we've been called out of the world. If we're not, it is because something is standing in our way. Something is preventing us from living the life that God has now called us to live in himself out of what he's called us from. It's important that we identify what that is. What is it that's standing in our way? What is the obstacle that is preventing us from living the life that God has called us to live? In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it shows us what stands before us as an obstacle that many Christians struggle to overcome. Again, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's hard to believe, but many people who profess to be Christians had major objections to the doctrine of salvation through faith alone. This is what he's writing about. And in the previous chapters, he's dealing with some specific issues as to questions that people had. People who claimed to be believers, but didn't understand what the life of the believer was called to do and what they were called to be. Now, this is something that is still an issue today, and, and Paul dealt with it during his time. The common Jewish person of the day couldn't comprehend how a person could ever begin to please God without a strict adherence to the Old Testament Mosaic law. To them, you had to have that type of obedience, a type of obedience to the Ten Commandments, and there were 613 total commandments given by God through Moses to the people that they were supposed to follow every single day. And if they didn't, they had to go to the temple or to the tabernacle before that and to offer sacrifices for how they had failed God's standard of, per of perfection. And the common Jewish person during the days of the Apostle Paul, which is the issue that he's dealing with, couldn't comprehend how you could ever live the life of obedience without obeying those Old Testament laws and commandments. And if you didn't, if you didn't have that type of strict obedience, then they'd seriously question your salvation because how could you be saved if you can't even obey in this degree? And in Paul's day, he dealt, with, uh, he, he dealt with many who insisted that a person was not saved until or unless you lived according to the laws of Moses and the men were circumcised. Now listen to what came up in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15 and verses 1 and 2. It said, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So imagine this. 
Paul and Barnabas are going all around the world and they're sharing the gospel. They're telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's died on the cross to pay for all of our sin, that if you believe on Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, how he has paid the price of all of your sin upon the cross, where all you do is believe on him and you're saved. And people are getting saved left and right, believing in Jesus Christ. And now all of a sudden they're being told, hey guys, hold on a second. As great as you're doing and a great job you're doing and how many people you're claiming to lead to the Lord, I hope that you're also telling them that if they don't live in strict obedience to all these Old Testament commands and laws, they're not actually saved. Imagine you're joyful because you've just found out that Jesus Christ has died for you. And that his sin, your sin rather, he was perfect. Your sin was upon his shoulders on that cross completely past present future all paid for every bit of it all taken care of and you throw yourself at his mercy recognize that he's the only hope for salvation he's the only means for you to ever get to heaven and you come to him in full faith believing that he is your everything and then you're having to be told oh that was good and all but unless you do this this and this you're not actually fully saved can you imagine that so they go up to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas. They go up to Jerusalem. And they meet with the other Jews who, who claim to be Christians. A group of legalistic Pharisees. And they listen to, what they, listen to what they were told. In Acts chapter 15 and verse number 5, the Bible says, But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. They're saying, it's great that these people believe, but... Their salvation isn't complete until they do this and until they obey, until they keep the law of Moses. Eventually, Peter stands up there in Acts chapter 15, and he sets the record straight in verses 9 through 11, and he says, And God put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, he says, Why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. You see what's happening here? These legalistic Jews were trying to put an extra burden upon these new believers and even those who are preaching the gospel saying that you're not fully saved unless you keep the Old Testament laws and the men get circumcised. How bogus is that? And it... Peter stands up and he says, do you guys realize how foolish this is? We couldn't even obey that. And you're going to expect others who aren't even Jewish to try and uphold the same things that were held above us and we couldn't keep? Do you realize how futile this is? Do you realize we might as well never even preach the gospel because you're asking them to keep to a standard which no one could keep to and saying that their salvation isn't legit until they do it. Well, we might as well throw out the Bible. We might as well stop trying to soul win. We might as well stop trying to share about the wonderful news of Jesus Christ because it's not as wonderful if you have to be perfect here on earth in order to have salvation. Can you believe that? And this is what they were advocating for. The council would finally agree that the observance to the Mosaic law added nothing to their salvation and should not be required on any single believer. Now, while some still believe, even today, that we must add something to our faith to make it real, to make it full, to make it complete, others believe that the grace of God in our lives is a license to be as sinful as we'd like. 
Well, isn't that nice? After all, we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse number 20, just one chapter prior, it says, moreover, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Amen. All right, so where sin was as bad as can be, the grace of God came and it was more powerful than as horrible and wretched that our sin could ever be. The grace of God abounded more than our sin could ever abound. And some mistakenly take that verse, Romans 5.20, as if it is teaching that God, believe them, this, is sound, this is going to sound preposterous, but some teach that God is glorified by our sin because our sin causes God's grace to abound even more. Now with this mindset, individuals determine that men were not only free to sin, but were in fact obligated to sin in order to enable God to expand his grace to people. Right? The, the premise makes sense, right? Logically, if this is true, that God says, okay, here's how things are going to work. Wherever sin abounds, I'm going to make sure that my grace abounds even more. So it, it's not necessarily a huge leap for a person to say, well, okay, if that's the case, the worse of a sinner I am, God, you're saying that you're going to offer me even more grace, right? So let's just test this theory and let's see how bad I can be to see how good you can be to overcome all of this. Right? No, no way! Shake your head no! Wrong! Absolutely wrong! What a crazy idea. It's a completely distorted view of God's grace that the more we sin, the more God shows us grace. Therefore, we should sin with complete abandon to give God more opportunity to shower us with his grace. It is a completely distorted view of God's grace, and yet it was a view held by many in those days and many today as well. Don't just be an ordinary sinner. Be an extraordinary sinner and see how much more God is glorified and how much more grace he shows you. It's completely crazy that people would even come to this conclusion, let alone adopt such a mindset, but it's the reality of how many people think. Paul had previously addressed this issue back in Romans chapter 3. Just turn a couple, a couple pages back. Romans chapter 3 and verses 5 through 8. He, he deals with this very specific issue. Romans 3, verses 5 through 8, he says, But if our unrighteousness, our sin, commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. You see, this idea here is flat out refuted. Paul just destroys this mindset in these verses suggesting that if this were the case, that God is going to show you more favor and show you more grace, the more vile of a sinner that you are, and that God is glorified in your sin, 
if that's true, God would have no basis of judging anyone, anyone at all, if our constant sinning promoted his glory and caused grace to abound. Right? Because God is then encouraging us to sin. Be as bad as you can. Do as much wicked and vile and unrighteous deeds as you can so you can see how awesome I am. And here is all the blessings. He'd be encouraging us to sin if that were the case. So how could you possibly accept the mindset that if you continue to do evil, good will come and God will be pleased? By that definition, Satan would be the most blessed and God-honoring being the world has ever seen. It's not just a ridiculous idea. It's completely unbiblical and heretical. One of the big issues we're dealing with is this idea that salvation is produced by conformity to some external laws. Throughout church history, we've done this, where we insist that conformity to man-made traditions are necessary for true godliness. And as a result, the church has opened itself up to all sorts of dangers because false believers have been allowed to enter and to use the freedom of the gospel as a justification for them to continue in their sin. We're told in, in the book of Jude, in verse number 4, It says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone teaches, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is clear on one thing, that salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ and nothing else. I don't care what you come to, there is one clear message, and it is that. We have to avoid the extremes of legalism, which adds some, some sort of conformity to our faith. We have to avoid abandoning God's grace to accommodate those who want to abuse the freedoms of the gospel to do whatever they want when they want. And this is why Paul asked the question here in verse number one of Romans chapter six. He says, what shall we say then? To all those who say that salvation isn't complete until you add all of these extra rules or salvation gives you a freedom to live as you want and God's going to bless you the more that you're sinful. What shall we say then? Are we to believe that the more we sin, the more God's grace is going to increase? The idea of continue, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That speaks of persistence. That speaks of habitual sin. Every believer is going to continue to sin. None of us are perfect the moment that we're saved. But the idea expressed here in verse number one is that of willingly, of that purposely and habitually persisting in sin. Paul wasn't speaking of the believer who occasionally falls into sin as every Christian does at times because of the weaknesses that we deal with in our flesh and the imperfections that we have. He's speaking of intentional sin. He is speaking of willful sin as an established pattern of a person's life. Since the believer has been freed from the bondage of our sin, he has no excuse to continue habitually in sin. Can a child of God continue to live as a child of the devil? You can't. This is the basic question that he's asking in verse number one. And the emphatic answer is given in verse number two. He says, God forbid. In the original, this is the strongest point of emphasis that can be made. 
God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So what we've seen is what stands in our way. But second, notice our response. Notice the response. The statement at the beginning of Romans 6 verse 2, again, is the most emphatic idiom in the Greek language. It carries with it the sense of outrage that such an idea could ever be considered as a possibility. The very suggestion that sin could ever be thought to please God or to glorify God is completely abhorrent. Paul doesn't even go into a lengthy explanation to refute it. He just flat out condemns it. And what he does do is point out how ridiculous such an idea is. Again, in verse number two, he says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You see, when you are saved, and you're saved once, you are dead to sin immediately. How can a person who is dead to sin continue to live in sin? The very grace of God came into your life and freed you from that sin, freed you from the eternal consequences of that sin to rescue you from sin. What sense does it make to return to that from which you were rescued from? To return to that which was bringing about your eternal demise. You were delivered out of eternal death only through the grace of God. You were translated into eternal life. Why would anyone deem the former life more profitable or more enjoyable than that which gives them eternal life in the presence of God in heaven? It is not only inconceivable, but what Paul is telling us here, it is flat out impossible. Once God saves you, you cannot return to that former state. You cannot return to once again being a slave to sin. You cannot return to being in a constant state of sinfulness. When Jesus saves you, he saves you once and for all. If your old nature has truly died to sin and been raised to walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ, you cannot go back. You cannot have spiritual life in Christ while simultaneously being spiritually dead in your sin. You can't have them both. You may continue to sin once you're saved, but you're not able to habitually remain in those sins like you did before you were saved. The presence of the Holy Spirit within every single believer will not allow the believer to remain in sin on, as a habit, as persistent. God makes you a brand new creation, one that cannot perpetually remain in sin. And thus, when we sin, even once, which we will, the Holy Spirit causes something to stir up inside of us. And this is such a wonderful feeling. Have any of you ever felt that feeling when you sin as a believer? Come on, put your hands up. This is wonderful, isn't it? There's so much joy and excitement that the Holy Spirit brings in your heart when you've sinned, when you've wandered away from God's path, and when you've done those things which you know you shouldn't be doing. The Holy Spirit makes you feel so warm and fuzzy inside, doesn't he? Right? Wrong! You know what he does? He makes you feel miserable. 
He makes your stomach get a pit in it. He makes you feel sick. He doesn't allow you to sleep at night. He keeps you restless during the day. He keeps your mind just thinking about what you've done and what you need to do to make things right. He makes you a shell of who you were until you get right with God. He doesn't allow you to be comfortable even for one moment in that sin. And you know why? Because your new nature... Your new nature has called you from that life of sin to a life of godliness. And when you're going back to live in that life of sin, it is contrary. It's like being a fish out of water. Your life is not the same and cannot function in that state. And the Holy Spirit's reminding you, hey, you're not that person anymore. And so you're not going to be able to function and exist in that same capacity anymore. You're not going to feel okay until you're over here living the life that God has called you to live. Because you're a new creation. Not that old person that you were before. So that misery, that feeling of uncomfortableness is going to persist until you make things right with God. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit. He's never going to allow a believer to be comfortable even for a single moment in sin. You're going to be riddled with guilt. You're going to have remorse. You're going to be sorrowful, mourning over it all. And that is a good thing. That is a great thing. Because God has called you to a much better life, and you're not going to live that better life the longer that you're trying to go back to that old life, which you can't do even if you wanted to. There's a new life that God has called you to live. When God saves you, that old man that you were, before you were saved, he's gone. He's not just gone on vacation to return after a while. He is gone. He is dead. He is a corpse that will never be revived. You are completely separated from that old man forever. It's not something that you carry with you that occasionally shows his ugly head from time to time. It is separated from you eternally because God has declared you righteous and has made you a new creature in himself. You may not be perfect, you may not be holy, but God has given you spiritual life for the first time. And he has started the work of holiness in your life. It doesn't matter how long it takes and how slow the process. Once God saves you, he starts the process of making you holy and doesn't stop until you're ready to be received into heaven. The point being that once we're saved, we are progressively getting better. You're saved the very moment you believe in Jesus Christ. But from that moment, God is progressively making you more into the image of his son. Not making you worse. We're progressively becoming more like Christ, not separating from Christ. Once we begin a new life in Christ, we can never go back to that old nature. And that's a good thing. That old nature never did anything good for you. It never offered you any sort of lasting benefit. It never offered any sort of lasting satisfaction. It only paid in counterfeit money. Why would we ever want to return to something so futile when the new life that God has given us comes with eternal blessings and everlasting joys? As long as you're living here on earth, you're never going to be free from sin. But from the moment we're saved, we're freed from the controlling power of sin. So that's our response. But notice third, the solution. Our solution. Look at verses 3 through 10. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Here is the solution. Now what's sad about this portion of scripture is that it needs to be mentioned at all. Why would anyone need to be reminded that we're dead to sin in Jesus Christ and we're alive to God the very moment we're saved? Why does that ever have to be restated? Why would anyone need to be reminded that God takes no pleasure in sin? And it certainly does not increase opportunities for you to be blessed the more you sin. Regardless of why. Christians in Paul's day, all the way to where we are today, still struggle with these issues. As Paul offers a solution to this problem, several principles are included. First, every true believer has been baptized into Christ. Every true believer has been baptized into Christ. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. He says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Every single true believer has been baptized into Christ. Now, the ordinance of baptism is the outward expression of the inward change that we have been saved. It is the believer publicly identifying that he belongs to Jesus Christ and he's choosing to live for him. And the picture of it is seen there where they are immersed under the water just as Christ was buried under the ground. He was buried, we are immersed under the water, and then we're raised, the Bible says, to walk in newness of life. And all of it pictures Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection. Sprinkling does nothing. Never seen anyone that was completely submerged under some sprinkling. We are completely submerged under the water and brought forth up from the water to picture Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to identify that we have been buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in the likeness of his resurrection. But he's not even necessarily talking about the ordinance of baptism here. He's talking about something more. Water baptism was a symbol of our old nature being crucified and buried as we're immersed beneath the water and then joining in union with Jesus Christ when we're raised from beneath that water just as Christ rose from the grave. That old nature died. That old nature is buried. And what came forth is a brand new creature in Christ with spiritual life. And this is the picture of baptism. And Paul is reminding these believers what it represented. Because they were guilty of turning symbols into necessities for salvation. The lesson being taught here in these verses is really amazing. When you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, it was as if you were taken back nearly 2,000 years and you were made a participant with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Every sin that Jesus took upon himself upon that cross was your individual sin if you've come to him in faith. 
He was buried in the tomb for your punishment. He rose from the grave to give you eternal life and to allow you to walk in newness of life. So when you trust in him and believe on him, it's like you're going back in time and you can see your sin upon that cross. You can see him dying for you because Christ, the Bible says, died for the sins of the entire world. And praise the Lord for that. He rose from the grave to give you eternal life and then to allow you to walk in that newness of life. Walking in union with Christ is the one thing that we were created to do. But the one thing we couldn't do because of our sin. Every one of us were created in the image of God. God created us to have a personal fellowship, to have a personal relationship with him. But sin stood in our way. When God offers his grace and a person believes on him and is saved, they aren't freed from prison, released to live apart from God. They're freed from death and allowed to live with God, which is what we were all designed to do. The one thing that we were created to do because we were created in the image of God and God freed us from that, uh, from, from the bondage of sin to live the way we were created to live. And some people don't even want that. We're now able to live with the one whose image we're created since God justifies us the very moment we're saved. We're to be holy. We're to be separated from sin. We're to be separated unto God. Not for the purpose of trying to make our faith seem more real to us, but because God has created us to be holy. You know that any of you have, any of you have uh, some fruit trees at home or plants that you plant in your garden of some sorts? Some of you. Bruce, I know you do. Apples on a tree are not just a sign that a tree is alive. They are the product for which the tree exists. It is completely unnatural to suggest that a sinner should receive God's grace and then live for himself. Living for God and living a life of holiness is the product for which we exist. God has created us in his image. When he saved us by his very grace, he's called us to live and to walk in newness of life, to walk in union and fellowship with him. And so it's like we were a tree that could never produce fruit because something stood in our way and that something was sin. And once he freed us from the bondage of our sin, he says, now you're free to bring forth fruit. Now you're free to bring apples and to bring oranges and to bring whatever it is that you want. All of this is what you were designed to do, so go and live the life that I've called you to live and bear that fruit because this is what you were designed and created to do. But notice second. The second principle is that the old man has been destroyed. Verses six and seven. He says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. And this should be common knowledge to these believers, and it really should be common knowledge to us as well. But we often need the reminder that in Christ we have this new life, a new heart. God has given us new spiritual strength. God has given us hope where there was none and many other blessings that weren't present in the previous life. Things are different because you are made new in Christ's image and in his likeness. 
Sin no longer has the same grip on your life that it once had. And the more you're growing in spiritual maturity, which is reading the Bible and spending time in prayer and being in fellowship with believers and cultivating that, that, that spiritual knowledge by being immersed in what God has given to us, the more you're aware of the sin in your life. Our lives in Christ are intended to be used to bring forth good works for God even though we're still going to sin from time to time. The point is that we have the capability to not sin. We have the capability to be free from sin and to to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable. In Romans chapter 7, the Bible discusses the struggle to always do what is right even though believers have the Holy Spirit within them, convicting them of sin and even potential sin. God brings clarity in our lives when we're saved. Clarity to see what things we have been doing that should no longer be a part of our lives once we're saved. Clarity to see what habits need to go, what friendships need to end, what practices need to be avoided. The old nature has been destroyed by the grace of God but we're still going to struggle with the relics of that old nature until we're finally received into heaven. As much as we've been freed from sin's bondage, we're still human and we still possess the same weaknesses that we had before we were saved. We've been made free from the eternal consequences of sin. We're no longer going to hell. But sin still finds a way to express itself in our lives. Our human weaknesses still open the door to Satan's temptations, especially when we're living apart from the Word of God. We're living new lives, really, in an unredeemed body. We look forward to the glorious day where we shall set aside these bodies to receive redeemed and glorified bodies that will be entirely free from the effects of sin. It would be nice if the Lord saved us, and the moment He saved us made it entirely impossible for us to ever sin. It would be nice to never have to worry about sinning again, never to have to deal with the effects of sin, never have to deal with the punishment and the consequences of sin. You're still going to be enticed by sin. But it's not going to be as enticing to you as it once was now that you're saved. We read in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. We're not going to be perfect in this life. But the pattern of sin and habitual sin that was part of our past life will no longer be possible in our new life in Christ. Imagine there are two adjoining fields that are separated by a road in between them. Satan owns and operates one, and the other one is owned and operated by God. Before a person is saved, he is living, he is working in the field owned and operated by Satan. He is completely under Satan's dominion and in his jurisdiction. But once the man is saved, he is transported from the field that was owned and operated by Satan to the one owned and operated by God, only now under God's jurisdiction. As much as he works in the field, as much as he's regularly and daily harassed by his previous master who seeks to get him to return to that old field to work and to do his old sinful ways, he is unable to do it 
Satan may be successful in temporarily drawing our attention away from our new master, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but he is never successful in getting us to return to that old life because he cannot, because that old life is completely dead. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we henceforth should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. That old nature is dead, gone, never to be a part of us again. The old man has been destroyed. And notice the third principle, that Christ's death to sin brought life to all who believe on him. Christ's death to sin brought life to all who believe on him. Verses 8 through 10. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. When God saves us, he calls us to live a life of holiness because that is what we were originally created to do. The sin that eternally condemned us to hell, the Bible says through faith in Jesus Christ, it has all been destroyed. We've been raised from that death to life with Christ. The message of verse 10, I think, is so incredibly powerful because we get a picture of everything that Christ did for us. Again, it says, For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Christ died where we should have eternally suffered. He died unto sin. He lived a perfect life. He was never at any point under the bondage of sin, never guilty of any sin, and yet he willingly offered to go to, go to the cross on our behalf and to die unto sin. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, and Jesus took the eternal punishment of all of our sin upon his shoulders, bearing the sins of the entire world on himself and made the full payment for all of it. He took upon himself the penalty of our sin. Verse 10 is important because it doesn't just tell us that Christ died unto sin, but it says he died unto sin how many times? Once. Once. What Jesus did for us at the cross is never going to have to be done again. He died unto sin once. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So what's the message? What do we leave with this morning? Live like you're a child of God. Amen. If you know that you're saved today, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted the fact that you cannot get to heaven on your own, that you will never be good enough on your own, and you've thrown yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ who came and died in your place and, all, and paid the price of all of your sin at the cross, and you've believed on him, the Bible tells us that the moment you did, you've done that, you are saved. Live like you're a child of God because that's who you are. Live like you're saved. Do as what it says here in Romans 6 verse 4. Walk in newness of life. Let the word of God dwell in your heart. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you never come to the point in your life where you've recognized that he is the only way of salvation, that he is the only hope for the sinner. And I, let me urge you that there is no greater time to do it than to do it today. Today is the day of salvation and there's no sense in putting it off because you don't know how much time God has given you. We read as part of our scripture reading Psalm 90 where Moses says basically we don't know. We don't know how much time God has given. 
So let us number our days, he says. Let us be mindful. Let us redeem the time that God has given us. And the only time that God has given you is right now. So why wait and play this gambling game where you're going to wait for a better opportunity or a more convenient time where you feel more apt to trust in Jesus as your Savior, thinking that the time is even going to be available to you? Come to Jesus today. Respond to the call that he has offered to come to him and receive salvation so free and so easy by just believing in Jesus Christ that he has died for your sins, that he buried all of your sin and the penalty of your sin in the tomb with him and then rose victoriously on the third grave, freeing you from the eternal bondage of that sin. Believe that he is everything that you need for salvation. The Bible says that the moment you believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are saved. You don't start a process by which you're saved eventually in 5, 10, 20 years. You're saved immediately and then God starts to work on you. He starts to work on you and he starts to cut off those rough edges. He starts to prune you and make you more fit to be in heaven one day because the way you're looking right now, you can't go to heaven just yet. He's still working on us. We're saved by believing in Jesus Christ, but he is molding us more into the image of his son. Allow the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. Respond to God in obedience. Allow that old nature to stay where it's dead in the past. Embrace the amazing grace of God and realize just how much he has done for you. God has done far more for us than what we deserve. His grace is all sufficient to take care of all of our sin and it sets us up for the best life here on earth and the greatest life with him in heaven. May we make it a point to understand who we are, where we've come from, and what Jesus has done for us and determine that we should walk in newness of life. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, I'm thankful, Lord, that first of all, you have made salvation so simple. Lord, you know just how frail and weak we are. Lord, the Bible so accurately depicts us as sheep because we are dumb. Lord, we don't know our right hand from our left hand. We don't know what is good for us if it was staring us right in the face. But Lord, I'm so thankful that you didn't require us to be good enough. You didn't require us to do enough. But all you required of us is to believe on your son, Jesus Christ, and then we shall be saved. And I'm thankful, Lord, that the moment we are saved is the moment, Lord, that you start that work of sanctification where you're preparing us to be received into the heavenly home that is guaranteed for all who come to faith in your Son. Lord, throughout this room, there are believers that are at various stages in that sanctification process. Lord, some of us are closer to heaven than others. Lord, only you know the timing. You know, Lord, when we're going to breathe our last breath. But I pray, Lord, that between now and then, that we would determine to walk in newness of life, that we would indeed demonstrate outwardly that we are your children. Lord, that we have been freed forever from the bondage of our sin and raised to walk in the newness of life in fellowship with the one who has declared us righteous through his own personal righteousness, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, through the Holy Spirit to know what things need to go, what practices need to change, 
Lord, and sacrifices that need to be made so that we can be the ones that you called us to be. Lord, and live in such a way that our lives serve as a shining example to the world around us who are still desperately looking for the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.